And then I don't, I don't know, I never have a way to, to start it, but I'm Michael Lobo. Um, I'm here with uh, Representative Isela Blanc. Did I uh -huh. say it? Yes. You cool. I, I practiced in the mirror 57 times. <laughs> That's um, so funny. Thank you for doing this. Um, I really wanted you on um, because, again, and we were talking earlier, but it was a recording, but uh, I, I really want to talk to people in the community who are doing, um, who are doing great work or who are passionate about what they do. And then also, um, there's a there's a dude in the White House who's uh, making it really awesome for everybody right now. So as a as a, spoiler alert, as a woman and uh, as a woman of color, I thought it would really be really great to to get your story of your journey um, to where you are now. Yeah. Um, and talk about that. But just a second ago, we were talking about if it's cool to talk about the computers. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Wh oh. Whatever. We yeah, we yeah. can okay, we can so, go. Um, you might get sidetracked and then find an interest in something else. I'm yeah. flexible. Yeah. Cool. And then, um, but we were talking about screen time with the kids. Yeah. And um, with with our kids, we have the computers, and it's 15 minutes uh, max. But um, one day a week, you said. One day a week. Yes. Yeah. Every Thursday, so it, so the kids get super excited. Um, and they what what's really funny is they're so used to the touch screen on iPads and phones that but we have the old school ones with the mouse and so at first they were smacking the crap out of the screens and we go no no this is what a mouse is and then they took it and they would rub it on the screen I go no guys come on hold on so then it it took a few days to um, uh, that's amazing yeah but wow. um and then when I talked to kindergarten teachers um, they talk about how the fine motor skills have really declined over the years because it's just touchscreen even with the mouse using it to move it along with the arrow there is some importance to it and even writing because now there's a lot of writing programs where you just kind of write with your finger but it's different from holding a pencil or a marker um but yeah that's just where i'm gonna throw out there um <laughs> uh so i guess going all the way um through time um who were your parents what were they like because they they're supposed to mold who you are um, Shape and mold as us. a person, yeah. So uh, okay, so a couple questions, right? Like uh, my journey and then my parents. So it's all tied together. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Go wherever you want. Yeah. Yeah. So part of my journey is, you know, um, originally I'm from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. I was born and lived there till the age of six and a half. Mm -hmm. And then at six and a half, I can describe every part of my journey from leaving my house to going to the uh, airport to hop on a plane to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and in those moments leading up to the journey, I had this really f bad feeling that we weren't going to come back. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a sense, and we sure did not. So we ended up coming to the United States. Uh, my mom and my dad, at that time we had three girls. I'm the oldest of four, uh, really wanted their daughters to have a better future. And as immigrants, especially from Mexico, uh, they wanted us to have a good education. They knew with an education that we would be more successful, more successful than them. My dad was a carpenter. He did beautiful woodwork, uh, an artist mm -hmm. to some degree. And then my mom, uh, up until that point, had been a homemaker. And my life really changed as soon as we uh, landed in the United States. And what's interesting is I always talk about before going to Oregon, uh, we stayed a few days in, in Los Angeles, California with uh, one of my mom's friends. And I can describe like every moment of that journey, including the time that I spent in California, including yeah. buying my first uh, generic Barbie doll at Kmart. Awesome. 
However, what's crazy is I have no idea how we got to Oregon. It's a very oh. vague, vague memory. Yeah. Uh, because as a six and a half year old, suddenly I was uh, thrust into this completely different culture uh, where you know English was spoken. I was in a classroom with uh, mostly English speakers, mostly uh, kids that didn't look like me. There was this one little girl that was my translator, and she was the only Spanish speaker in the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, eating meals that I was unfamiliar with. Yeah. Uh, right? Because I was used to, yes. we call it Mexican food, but that was my food, right? Tacos, uh-huh. tortillas, arroz, yeah. frijoles, and then to go from that to like <laughs> a weird version of rice and yeah, other things. Yeah. And, um, and then I lost my mom to the potato fields, right? Um, so when I was in school, my mom and dad would be home sleeping. And then by the time I got out of school, um, I became like the caregiver of my two younger sisters. And my mom and dad were not present. We lived with my uncle at that time, but it's not the same thing, you know? No, no, no. Having your mom with you 24 7. You know, every night uh, when we were in Mexico, we would uh, say our prayers. I could recite every Mexican prayer. We didn't read books, we prayed. (laughs) And then. To suddenly have that go away, where you were tucking yourself and your sisters in bed, uh, was I didn't realize how traumatizing it really was to me. Yeah. And so um, we were in Oregon for a few short months. Then from Oregon, we bounced around to Illinois, lived there for a few short months, and then went to a small town in Wisconsin called Stoughton, right outside of Madison. Mm-hmm actually was there probably close to three years, which is probably why I don't have an accent. I was surrounded by beautiful white kids. Uh, No Latinos. My sister and I were the only Latinos in the school. And by that time, my little sister came along. And um, there was no Spanish TV or radio. Um, But I have to tell you, like, I loved uh, being a student. I love school. That's why I'm passionate about education because... Uh, it was the first time I got to experience things uh, in that school system that I would have never experienced if it hadn't been. It was the first time. I remember you, you said you're in, in art and theater. Uh-huh. Um, I was in second grade, and I remember the first time going to, um, to see a ballet. I remember uh, walking in the theater and just being amazed by all these seats on the stage. Yeah. And then sitting in the second row, second seat in from the left. And then all of a sudden, the music starts blasting. And then the ballerinas start just bouncing in from off somewhere. And it was so beautiful. And it was a nutcracker. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I got to see the nutcracker and just what a visual and uh, experience, but also the music. Uh, and the beautiful people dancing and their costumes it was it was enormous and it was all of those rich uh learning environments that allowed me to really have a love for learning Mm uh and to jump to my mom and my dad so my dad uh you know back in the day when i was a kid we actually had door-to-door salesmen yeah and there was a gentleman that came to our door and my dad 
bought us the best gift. It was a set of encyclopedias. Most people don't know what they are anymore. No. Yeah, all the young, what is that? Yeah, what is that? It's uh, It literally allowed me to uh, travel the world and outer space mm-hmm. and learn about people and art and things and culture. And I, and my sisters, but I in particular, would get lost in these encyclopedias. Uh, and then uh, we actually lived just a block away from the library. And I remember going to the library, and I just loved the smell and seeing the the dragons and the yeah. palaces. If you you know if you've been to a library, especially yeah. like a kids library, they try to really make it up. And I remember sitting at a table and uh, grabbing a book and just kind of really getting lost in the book. And a librarian came to me and said, "You know, you can check out the books." And I had mm-hmm. no idea what she meant. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, allowed me to start checking out books but it was really those dang encyclopedias that really allowed me to get lost in uh, loving learning and experiencing things that I a poor because we were poor um, didn't know it right because as long as you know if you're if you're a seven-year-old kid and as long as you have love uh, food on the table and a roof over your head Mm -hmm. you don't need anything else yeah. Um, and that's what my, even though my mom and dad were working a lot and I really didn't get to see them a lot, um, I knew they loved me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my dad, man, he, uh, he was a fighter, right? Uh, I, I think it was in high school. He embarrassed me. You know, parents, oh, of course. parents yeah. embarrass us. Um, I didn't appreciate him. Unfortunately, I have lost both my parents. Um, and I have, you know, a few regrets, but um, my dad, I remember dropping me off at school one day, and he was wearing this shirt that said, who's the illegal pilgrim with a big Quaker pilgrim on that shirt? Oh, yes. <laughs> and this was unusual <laughs> in the 80s, by the uh, way. <laughs> and then, uh, and so my dad was uh, openly a fighter, uh, and my mom was a different kind of fighter. She was very quiet uh, always was watching and listening, and then when necessary, when somebody pushed her buttons, she would uh, defend. One story on that one is I was 12 uh, when we moved to Arizona. I was 10 when we moved to Arizona, but when I was 12, my mom uh, cleaned homes. That was what ended up being from off the potato fields to the uh, taco shell factory to suddenly cleaning people's homes. Mm-hmm. Um, we would go and help her in the summers, and I would be doing a terrible job cleaning the sink while she would be scrubbing away at the tub or the toilet. And one day, uh, the homeowner walks into the bathroom, and she's like, "Oh, Aurora, I see you're uh, teaching your daughter tools of you know uh, tools of the trade or whatever." And my mom, literally, who was on her knees cleaning, gets up and kind of looks at her and says, "No," in her very broken English, says, "No, uh, she's here to learn what hard work is, so she'll stay mm. in school." Um, And just seeing this woman um, who rarely said anything uh, get up and kind of be like, no, you're wrong. And it it was pretty powerful. It was those, you know, we all have them, those little moments where uh, our parents, um, you know, we're reminded of their humanness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Um, Being uh, six... And coming, what what did your parents tell you was happening? Uh, and going to all these places. Yeah, so it's so interesting. Uh, I remember going to uh, the office where we got our pictures taken for our visas. Remember that moment? And 
we were just anticipating this journey, right? This journey uh, to visit an uncle in this foreign country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, as a six-and-a-half-year-old, I just had the sense, because the way we were, um, you know, we were kind of putting everything away in our house. Mm-hmm. And I had a few little trinkets, and I remember um, burying them in this small garden that we had in our in our patio. And it almost felt like a, like a, a burial. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Kids know. They're great perceivers yeah. of things. Yeah, they yeah. really are. They'll, um, sometimes I'll, I'll just be having a, a terrible day at work, and then one of the kids will go, Michael Lobo, you look mad. I go, what? <laughs> Do you need a hug? And they'll just give me a tiny little hug, and I, I just feel so much better. I'm like, well, I still have student loans, but I mean, I'll take this tiny little hug for now. Um, and it's it's super sweet. But yeah, kids kids are very intuitive. And then that kind of goes in with the, the education and the development of them. Is I, I always run into parents who kind of think kids are dumb. And kids are just, mm, whatever, I'll just drop them off here and you'll keep them alive right I, until I come back. And I go, but they can learn stuff. They can do stuff. They feel. They, they understand all these things. And I... I, I think now it's changing now that we're trying to figure out more about education and their development. Um, Which so, is crazy that you're even yeah. saying that. We're in the 21st century. I mean, yes, we're barely starting to figure that out, how important and education even, is. And even then, uh, I, had, uh, I was in education committee two weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about uh, collecting data for kindergarten uh, mm-hmm. on different things. And I was like, collecting data we already have the data we already understand why kindergartners or why kids are not reading well by third grade we mm-hmm. already know the data yeah the first five years of a child's life are the most critical yes yeah right um, they are sponges as parents as caregivers we are shaping and molding who they're going to be and I, I used to do parenting classes and so the best example that I would give to parents is our kids at that age, when they're one, two, three, four, and five, have this amazing imagination mm-hmm. where they visualize themselves being many things, astronauts, right? They're engineers, they're architects, they're mm-hmm. scientists, they're teachers. And what we end up doing as adults is we end up taking away their capacity to yes. imagine mm-hmm. their true potential. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's sad when... I'll go to, you know, we'll go to a restaurant and then there's a, a grown-up with a kid and um, they, just, they, give, they give them their phone. Yeah. And they sit there. They don't even try to talk to them. And um, also in, in our infant room, when we get the, the new teachers come in, uh, a huge note I've always heard that they get is um, they're not talking to the babies. And then they, they say, what? You can talk to babies? But they're, they're always oh, absorbing, so we have to tell them, yes, just talk around them, talk to them, and then they start to get that socialization of it. Um, but they, yeah, people really underestimate what kids can do. Um, it's really sad. It is. And then we're barely figuring out, oh, yeah, let's talk to them. And, um, and then, yeah, with the, a lot of the, the gender norms are still being passed down. Um, Both indirectly and directly. Oh, yes, and sometimes yes. we don't even know that we're passing stuff down, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll hear, you know, um, I'll have a girl who say, oh, I want to be a firefighter. And then one of the boys or even one of the girls will say, girls can't be firefighters. 
And I go, what is going on? Yeah. It's 2019. And um, <laughs> it's frustrating. And I have to, you know, I can only do so much 40 hours yes. a week to reset. But, I mean, they go home and then. Um, so I, we can only do so much. But, um, uh, but you're, um, you're doing so much more, right? Uh, because uh, kids will always remember those teachers who have had such an impact, positive impact in their lives. Uh, you know. Yeah, I hope so. They I, do. I hope it's not that. They do. Yeah. Um, they're like, Michael Lobo, that Asian lady who was... <laughs> what, what just happened? Um, with, uh, in school, you said you love school. Who, uh, I guess, who were you in school? I was kind of the class clown. I was kind of the goof. I was, I was the, at every parent-teacher conference, um, my parents would get mad because I was always the, Michael has a lot of potential. He's not <laughs> living up to it. He's not... Oh if my he, gosh, which is so I horrible to even, oh my oh, gosh, yeah, even so, hearing words like that, that yeah. is discouraging. I um, was incredibly shy, mm-hmm. uh, really hard on myself, although people didn't know it. Um, you know, just uh, in the background, rarely noticed, um, just trying to be a really good student, yeah. um, trying to do my very best. So I, I was the quiet, the quiet little Mexicanita, um, just trying to be a good student. Um, and, and I think what made it hard, too, is by the time I entered high school, uh, so Tempe High, graduated from Tempe High here in Arizona, uh, Tempe High was the first time in my short uh, lifetime where I had spent the most time in one school in mm-hmm. one place. Mm-hmm. Um, before then, I had by that t- time I think it was my ninth school. Ooh. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. So anytime uh, I made a friend, then we'd move, or became comfortable. So when I lived in Wisconsin, I uh, lived there for close to th- three years. And then we were completely uprooted um, to move to Arizona in 1982, a long time ago. Um, and I think I, that that changes who you are, right? Because yeah. then you become a little bit um, shy or insecure or afraid to make friendships because they're you lose them. Right. Um, yeah. So I was I was the quiet kid, the well-behaved kid, rarely in trouble. Yeah. Uh, really, never got in trouble. Too 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 embarrassed to try anything. Uh huh. Um, too embarrassed to even talk to boys. So uh, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. who I was. Uh, what? Why were you? Uh, you said you were hard on yourself. Why were you so hard on? Because uh, I think kids are right. Kids want to. Uh, so I remember. Uh, not like today, but back in back in the good old days, um, we would take the Stanford Nines uh, oh once a year. That was it. Yeah. But there was no pressure, right? There was no pressure. I just remember we'd have to take these tests. Mm-hmm. And in the summer, we would get the results of the test. And I always remember looking at the graph. And the graph would say uh, it, it would have you and where you fit in the line compared to the national and the state level. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, looking at that and going, "Oh my God, I, I was I'm terrible at math. Um, I need to do better." So then I would like work really hard in the summer, um, and then you know, too embarrassed to ask questions. Yeah. Um, right, so hard because it's like, and then you'd ask a question, and I remember like turning all shades of red because yeah. it 
in those moments it felt like a stupid question or you know teachers sometimes would have a way of making maybe not saying it that's why I say kids are great perceivers of people uh, but you knew it's like oh okay I guess I shouldn't have asked that and um, yeah so just just hard on myself in that I think I was always um, uh, aware of not wanting to be foolish or look foolish and It didn't matter. I wouldn't do anything to look or be foolish, but it always felt like I was. I, so it was just the insecurities, I guess. Mm. Yeah. How was the um, with the insecurities and everything? Being the oldest, um, I'm. Well, mine is. My older sister grew up in the Philippines her whole mm. life, so I was the oldest because my two little brothers. Um, oldest here, but yeah, yeah, not she, technically, it was weird. not, yeah, it not, was really not weird. in birth, birth, but you, yes, yeah. I gotcha. Um, so, and I was kind of the dumb dumb where I would go get in trouble, and then my brothers, oh, let's not do that. Um, so, uh, you were, you were the uh, you were always experimenting, I was not the dumb dumb, just experimenting. Yes, experimenting. Thank you. Um, I'll take all the compliments. Um, and then my, my oldest sister is super smart and achieving all this stuff, um, because she learned from you. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you're talking oh, no. your older sister. My older sister. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. My yeah, older yeah. Gotcha, sister. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and then, uh, so how how was the, the chemistry with you and your sisters? Oh, so it's so, so I'm the oldest of four girls. And, uh, you know, we, we, we get along really well. Um, like, I love my sisters. I care about my sisters. There was a, a period in time where... Uh, <laughs> high school high school's a little bit harder right yeah I, so I was always like the caregiver and the stuff that you remember and don't remember about like growing up right and your sisters your siblings will remind oh, you yeah. what you did well and what you didn't do well which is more often uh, you know do you remember when you did this to me or that to me so siblings definitely have a way of keeping us honest so I um, got along great with my sisters, except for my second sister, my sister Emma. Her and I would get into these really great. I think one time I grabbed my purse and like, or her purse actually, and gave her a good whopping with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so good memories and bad memories. Um, I was talking to um, so Emma the second, uh, much smarter than I. We're Irish twins. We were born in the same year. I was born in January. She was born in December, like yeah. literally. Um, so we were very close in age. And then the third one is two and a half years younger than me. And I remember um, by the time she was getting ready to start high school, I, I was going to be a junior. So I remember that she was going to go to and sign up for classes. And I told her, I said, don't let that counselor sign you up for these low classes because I didn't have anyone to help guide me. Mm. And my parents um, didn't know how to advocate for me right they just kind of really trust the school system and so when I started my freshman year I was put in a lower level math and science class where I didn't belong Um, and I didn't realize how uh, how impactful in a negative way that was to me Mm -hmm. because it hit me when I was a sophomore my set Emma uh, was then a freshman and then we were in the same classes right? Uh, Same science and math class. And that was devastating, right? And then I felt completely inept. And, you know, I was a good student and had a lot of potential and was smart. I think all kids have potential and capacity. 
So it really devastated me. So Norma um, kind of was like, I, I was a terrible test taker. Mm -hmm. And so when I knew she was signing up for classes, I was like, do not let those counselors sign you up for any of these low-level classes. You demand that you be put in the right grade-level math and science. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I didn't know I had done this. She reminded me uh, like a few years ago, and she said, you know, I remember going into that counselor's office, and sure enough, they were trying to put me in these lower-level classes, and you had told me, don't let them do it. And she gently argued with the counselor, and the counselor really said, well, you know you're going to fail, and that's going to be your problem. But if what? you if you want to fail, then you go ahead. And so, what kind of counselor is this? I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I you know it happens, right? And and she fought, and she knew she was going to struggle, but she guess what passed, yeah. right? She just had to work a little bit harder. Um, and when somebody tells you you're going to be a failure, instead of her, and we were taught you don't give up, you prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately. We have a lot of kids that when they hear that messaging, yeah, they give up. Oh yeah, yeah, and and that's I think that's one of the, the biggest things I've learned is, um, you know, we, we, we kind of just walk around saying, oh that that looks like a bad kid, or yes. like they're throwing a fit in the supermarket, but but the parents have a lot to do with it in how they they mold their self esteem and their their work ethic even, and it's really sad we just, we we underestimate these kids and what they're able to do um, and not give them the tools for it. And we don't give parents the tools either, right? That's another, yeah. And uh, one great example of how, um, how important it is to, so when my kids started school, I was that uh, short of being a helicopter parent. I was there. <laughs> I was not that yes. extreme, right? The helicopter where they're like constantly flying yes. and saving their child. I didn't do those things, but I was there. Um, reading with their classmates, showing up for lunch, and then uh, Andy was in second grade, and I had this thing where I, we just didn't like getting up in the morning. So we were always running late to school, and by late we were like barely making it. By the time the second bell was ringing, the kids were already in the classroom, and one day Mrs. Richardson, my son's second grade teacher, pulls me to the side and said, Mrs. Blanc, I know you're here all the time, you're always volunteering, so you clearly know how important your child's education is, so thank you so much, but can you please make sure you get your kids to school on time? And then she painted this picture. She said, you know, if they wake up, you get them dressed, they come to school, after they've eaten breakfast, let them run around for a good 10 minutes, get all that energy out, and when they hear that first bell ring, they know, oh my gosh, it's time to get ready for the school day. Right. And so then they know they have to start lining up. So they start lining up, and then their bodies are starting to calm down. Their brains are starting to prepare for the school day. And so by the time they get into the classroom and the second bell has rung, they're ready yeah. for a day of learning. Yeah. When she told me that, and she's like, and what you're doing is you're literally rushing in, and they haven't gone through this process of preparation. Yeah. And you're literally throwing your kid off. And I was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah. Just because she took a few minutes to thoughtfully and gently explain to me how I was kind of impacting them. Uh, and I was involved, right? Yeah. But I just needed that extra tool of learning. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's 
Cause yeah, and then we just expect parents to know just because we're adults. Yes. And adults have it figured out, so it's cool. And it doesn't but, matter if you're college educated or not. Right. We still have opportunities for learning. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so you went to Tempe High. Uh, where did you go after Tempe High? So I was an Arizona State University freshman, uh, except when I went to ASU, ASU was... Well, it lacked diversity. Uh-huh. Um, I knew I had to go to college, but didn't really understand why. Um, I, I, there was all of these cultural shifts that I now as an adult recognize I was still really trying to process and understand, uh, especially back when I was a kid because we didn't have the internet, right? We didn't have uh, this rich, uh, diverse environment of understanding of the importance of diversity and embracing culture. I grew up in the 80s, and if, in fact, um, I cannot relate to any of uh, 80s movies because, A, I didn't watch them, and then when I did watch them, I couldn't relate to them because it was very, um, for lack of a better word, very culturally insensitive mm-hmm. and very American-centric. Mm-hmm. of portraying a picture of what American life should be um, and how American teenagers should be. And that was not my experience as a, a Mexican mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, had a different home life um, and was taught to behave a certain way. Like, it was, there was a disconnect. Um, and so for me... I went to Arizona State University. Um, I was signing up for classes. At that time, I was a legal permanent resident and um, was signing up for English 101, but I couldn't. So I had filled out my schedule mm-hmm. uh, where you had, back in the good old days, we had to write <laughs> everything down. Yes. So we had to go through this booklet and, and, and literally figure out our time schedule and and if we had enough time to walk, computers didn't do the work for us, is no, what I'm trying to yeah. say, right? Like, I had to do it. And so I go up, and we had to stand in these massive long lines, especially if you didn't sign up early, which I did not, because I didn't know I could. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got up, after a couple hours standing in line to enroll, they're like, oh, no, you can't sign up for English 101 because you're a, a foreign, technically a foreign student, so you have to get a pass to be in English 101. Otherwise, you're going to be signed up in, in English 101 for foreign students. I was like, what? What? Yes. So I had to walk all the way to the English department. And I remember this uh, older woman, gray hair, with glasses behind the desk. And I'm like, hi, I'm here because I have to get a pass so I can be in English 101. And she looks at me with, well, more or less disgust. Uh-huh. And she's like, now you might think English is a foreign language, but it is not. And speaking very slowly. Yeah. Now, I, my, I still speak the same way. So it's not like yeah, I had yeah. this like super thick accent. And I looked at her, I go, excuse me? Yeah, I know this. And so I had to explain myself again. And there's just a very, a huge disconnect. All that to describe that when I was a student at ASU, there were very few supports for first generation uh, students like me. Uh, There was literally 
uh, a lot of challenges because um, I couldn't afford to buy books, even though I got financial aid. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that created stress. Um, I didn't have computers that exist back then. I didn't have a computer, um, so I would have to type my reports. Yeah. And if I made a mistake, I'd have to start all over again. Um, and so I was pretty much set up for failure, and I didn't have uh, someone to guide me uh, or help me, so I really struggled. I went to ASU, and then I went from being a really good student to kind of being a, uh, not that I was a poor student, I just didn't have the tools to help me be successful, uh, an understanding and grasp of the fast shift from high school to college. Um, the good news is that all my um, attempts to succeed we might call failures, but attempts to succeed, uh, learning lessons, I I was like the guinea pig, okay. and I was able to help my sisters. So yeah. um, I didn't complete my four-year degree. Um, I always say that my sisters were a lot smarter than I am because the two that follow me both got um, their bachelor's and two master's in mm -hmm. curriculum and um, an education, I don't remember what else. Oh, administration. And then my little sister, who's exactly seven years younger than me, um, she's like the smartest of us all. Uh, and that's because she learned from all of our mistakes, uh, is really just super smart. Um, so it was all my uh, learning opportunities that I passed on to my sisters. Yeah. And I ended up going back to school. And here's the crazy part. Um, so it was 2010, I decided to call and find out, and, and I remember I was just, it was this buildup. I was anxious, I was sick to my stomach, because um, I was afraid they were gonna tell me that I had two more years of ASU classes that I would have to complete. Um, because that's the message I had been receiving during all those years that I was an ASU student, because I had done so poorly. Um, and when I called, and they're like, oh no, you're only like nine, uh, nine classes, 27 credits away from oh. graduating. I was like, what? Damn it. I was like, but you know what? It's okay. I, I finished it in a year. I plugged it all out in a year, uh, taking online uh, and, and classroom classes. And it was a great experience. And I don't regret um, having been a bad student in my early 20s uh -huh. uh, and going through the process and getting my degree in 2011, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was family studies? Is that uh, family, family, and family and human development. Family and human development. Yes. Um, why did you pick that? Um, I was always interested and had taken a lot of classes around uh, early childhood development. But I got to tell you, back in the day, in the 90s, when they were teaching that stuff, it was really boring. Uh -huh. uh, not great, right? And there, there was some research, but now I think there's just so much more... Um, it's so much better. It's done. It's just I was interested in um, relationships, family, and human development, and landed on it. Yeah. What um, what I've what I've always noticed with um, just people I know in college, uh, there's this there's this huge pressure to know what you want right away mm. or know what you should do and what you have to become, and so then they're freaking out because they don't know. Yeah. And I always. Um, because I, well, I'm in a fraternity, and so the, the newer, younger brothers, I always tell them, uh, it's okay. Just take your time. It's a journey. And it, it I was uh, psychology for a while at uh, Phoenix College. Then when I transferred to ASU, 
um, and then I started really loving um, theater. I couldn't take any theater classes without being a theater major. Mm. So I had to add it for um, interdisciplinary study. So I was psychology theater. And then in just jumping around different stuff, I was taking a few family uh, and human development classes. And so then I added it as a minor. So I was in school for a super long time. <laughs> and um, then I finally graduated. But, um, you know, there's, there's this pressure to, to finish in four years and to finish and just get it out there. And um, so that, that's really cool that you went, even if you didn't go back, you're still taking this journey through life. Yeah. Figuring yourself out and even figuring out your effect on, you know, your siblings and the, the people around you. Yeah, it's called a lot of self-reflection and awareness. Yeah. But, you know, uh, to your point, though, uh, when I do talk to young people, uh, I always ask, because I think that is part of what happens. Like, as parents, we want our kids to be successful, and we are living in this very capitalistic world that's driven mm-hmm. and centered around money and making sure that you have a high-paying job. Yep. Uh, that's going to pay for the bills, blah, blah, blah. And and I was guilty of it, and I, I um, feel bad, my oldest son. But here's the thing. At the age of 8, 9, and 10, before we're shaped and molded in a way that is driven by our your parents' uh, desire of who they want you to be, mm-hmm. you know, you were saying that you were like the class clown, uh-huh. right, in school. So... You were your authentic self in those moments, which was to uh, entertain yeah. uh, and either bring happiness to people, right? And so that's why you have a passion for theater. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, when you're that age, you authentically have an idea of what you're passionate about something. Uh, you want to do something, right? But then adults get in the way yep. and uh, screw it up for us. Uh-huh. Um, so I say, think back to when you were young. What were you passionate about? Like, what did you really love and enjoy doing um, or enjoy playing? And then, uh, so that's one. Or I always say, you know, what's the problem that you want to solve? Mm. I've heard that one from someone. It's like, it's a different question versus what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. Right? Uh, what problems do you want to solve? Who were you authentically and what did you authentically enjoy as a 10-year-old yeah. or an 8-year-old? I love that. Yeah. That idea. Maybe be- I wanted to be a brontosaurus earlier, but yeah, <laughs> eventually, yeah, enter- entertain, make people laugh. Um, and it was... Uh, I and we may not know it, right? We, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, it's, exactly, it's the yeah. things that we do and how we play. I don't know. Yeah. With... Um, w- before your parents passed, how what did they um, think? I guess about your your trajectory of where you were going. Because mine were uh, we're Filipino, so we're we're supposed to be nurses. Uh, <laughs> and, um, my my younger brothers are engineers, and my oldest sister is a nurse. And then I'm an actor, podcaster guy, and um, so that was a huge disappointment to them. But uh, how what were their views on how you were turning out? So before, so my mom and my dad both passed away in 2007, uh, six months from each other. And uh, so it was, I didn't, I mean, I, I was happy being a mom first and foremost and living the dream. And I certainly always felt some level of shame and embarrassment for having college, university be incomplete. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember uh, when my mom was really sick and I don't know, we were just talking and I think I was expressing kind of like, um, you know, like, sorry, I didn't turn out to be quite the right person. And my mom's like, no, you're fine. Like, you're doing good. Like, no, you know, it doesn't define you. Um, So I, oh, I'm going to get teary-eyed. Oh, sorry. Um, I never thought I would run for politics. Um, In 2007, I never thought I would finish my degree. I was just happy being a mom and trying to shape my mold and my kids very imperfectly, but trying to do those things. Um, So my parents haven't seen um, who I've become because of them, right? They haven't seen uh, me be the fighter that apparently I am, or they haven't seen me do things that I sure as heck never imagined doing ever. Um, So there's some... You know, a level of sadness in terms of, uh, but not really because my mom and my dad were pleased with who I was before becoming who I currently am. Yeah. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's this, yeah, I think there's a, I would hope there's an inherent um, pride and love mm-hmm. that's unconditional with, from parents to kids. And yeah, it, from what you say, it sounds like, they loved who you were, and it, it leads to who you became. So, yeah. yeah. Um, how did, and that brings it up. How did you get into um, politics then? Accidental. Um, so I was always. So I've always been. It's so funny. Uh, they always say that women uh, are asked, you know, ten or more times often to run for politics, right, or for run for public office, I should say. So I had uh, always been involved in my community as a mom and uh, just engaged. And I would always have friends that would say, you really need to run for school board. And I was like, nope, that's not me. Um, I remember when I worked as a school liaison uh, at Holdeman Elementary, that's in Tempe, the, uh, the amazing office manager Uh, When she met me, she's like, girl, you're going to run for politics. I was like, girl, you're insane. (laughs) That was like, literally, I I think I started working there like in 2007, 8, 2007. Um, So uh, people, I think, in my, throughout the last 10 years, uh, saw something in me that I did not see in myself. Um, And... In 2015, I went to a training because I was interested in learning about campaigns. Uh, I had helped in a couple campaigns by knocking on doors or making phone calls for uh, candidates. And every election day uh, cycle after 2008, I would take off a day from work to get out the vote on election day. So those were the little things I was doing. And I was, one time I helped, uh, it was, uh, I think they're now the DREAM Act Coalition, and I remember uh, it was election day uh, in early 2012, I think, and I was watching all of these amazing young people just like running circles and, and, and getting 
people the information to knock on doors, to get out the vote, and that just inspired me. So I went to this training in 2015, really inspired by these young Latino activists. Um, and I'm like, you know, I, maybe I want to learn. And what I did not know, uh, that it was actually both a campaign but ca- uh, candidate training. Mm. And so first day we had to sit down and uh, do our stump speech. And I kid you not, I was sitting there. I'm like, well, number one, I was one of the older people there. Uh, There was a young man sitting next to me. He was my son's age. He was 19, Mm -hmm. right? And I think I was maybe uh, the second or third oldest, but there was like three or four of us that were kind of like in our 40s, and then everyone else, maybe a couple people in their 30s, everyone else was like under 25. So I already felt out of place. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Why, why am I writing a stump speech? I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm here to talk about somebody else. And so I kind of was like twiddling my thumbs and saying, well, this is ridiculous. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, we're going to break up into groups. Now you have to read your stump speech. And I was like, oh, crap. So I really have to do this. So I bullet pointed, uh, pretending like I was running for school board. And then in the groups, uh, I got up and did my stump speech. And then the executive director uh, at the end of the day was like, oh, my God, what are you running for? And I'm like, no, I'm certainly not running for anything. I'm here to help someone in their campaign. And she's like, no, 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 you really need to run for something. Again, uh, someone saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And so then that started to lead into questions. Well, maybe I should find out what it looks like. Um, More of exploratory So I started exploring by finding out about my legislators, uh, finding about what it looked like. And then, so that was in March when I did the training. Come December, uh, my seatmates, my now seatmates, uh, Representative Salmon and Senator Mendez, came to me and said, hey, why don't you run with us? Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, let me think about that. (laughs) So it took me uh, almost a month to decide, and what that month looked like was a month of headaches, anxiety, fear, um, uncertainty, because I was going to have to quit a job that I loved doing, um, because I worked at First Things First, and if you work with a state organization and you're running for public office, you have to quit your job. And, um, And I think I woke up one day and happened to be in the bathroom, and I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. Several months ago, I started on this journey because I was interested in learning about campaigns. And so now I've been indecisive out of fear. And I thought, am I really going to allow fear to dictate the possibilities of what can be? Mm -hmm. And the best way to learn about campaigns might be if I run my own. And I went to them and I said, let's do this with no real, a lot of intentions of working really hard, uh, but authentically thinking that there is a chance I was going to lose because it was a very competitive primary in August of 2016. There were four of us running for two seats. Uh, We were running against a woman who had been appointed to the seat earlier that year. So she was the incumbent. Um, And... Um, I didn't have, uh, you know, we think we have to have a resume. I didn't have a great resume, you know, mostly a mom, community member. Um, But when I knocked on the doors, I just, I just said who I was. I'm a mom passionate about education. 
And as a former undocumented, uh, that time when uh, now President Trump, then candidate Trump, was running and came out calling Latinos like me. Yeah. Yeah. What a great guy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you said you're from Arizona. So for yeah. me, I always tell people, think about this. Arizona has been known for racist laws. Oh, yeah. SB 1070, which is uh-huh. a papers please, the ban on Mexican-American studies, because apparently if you're Latino, if you're African-American, if you're indigenous, if even if you're a woman or a child, and if you understand how people stood up uh, to fight against uh, oppression, continuously being reminded that they're less than, that the reason our country has some level of equity and has moved forward is because of people like us who have mm-hmm. stood up and have demanded more and and in a state like Arizona, uh, to have an informer undocumented win her election um, on the same night as President Trump, as scary as that was, because it is scary for her, and it has been, and we've seen why over the last two years. There mm-hmm. have been things that have really have taken this country back. Um, it gives, still gives me hope, right? Some level yeah. of like hope that, and it's created a shift in change. Like this chaos has created a shift in change in people mm-hmm. uh, who are really paying attention, especially young people and people of color, but really young people, right? Young people are really seeing, right? It's tangible yeah. um, how bad uh, policies are in fact hurting us as a whole, right? And, and, and young people see things as more of a collective where um, my generation and the generation um, you know, older than I, very individualistic, hmm. very focused on I uh, and me mm-hmm. and having more power, right? Where young people are like, no wait, this is, for example, this is our earth. Yes. Right? We need to do a better job of taking care of it. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, there was an accident. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, I think that's the, the, the most beautiful things are, are kind of the things you don't plan on yeah. happening, which is pretty neat. Um, and I, and as you know, when I was growing up, and then um, you know, President Obama was president, and I didn't really, I wasn't in the politics because because my parents made me watch 60 Minutes and read the <laughs> newspaper. Like, you have to know what's going on. And I go, I'm a kid. And um, and uh, I would just see that stuff, and it'd be whatever. And then so then there's Bush and then Obama. And I go, oh, cool. A person of color in the White House. I guess it's it's happening. And then and then it went back to this uh, a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. And then just, it feels like every day or every yeah, other day. I can't there's keep track. something like, what? Well, are we going back in time? What is... And then... It's hard, and um, and then now with my my son, I'm just I I'm I'm scared at times, but then it's um it's really people like you and um we know uh, Athena is um my wife's sorority sister, so that's how we oh know, very cool we know her. so um seeing seeing y'all do it, and then just seeing just little blips here and there, even in even as um. I wouldn't say superficial, but in, in movies, you know, Black Panther, Coco, mm. Crazy, just just little things of just people of color popping out. Uh, it's very encouraging, but then there's this other thing looming, and I'm like, oh, God, no. Um, 
But you, you, how, you touched on it a little bit, but could you go more, um, how do you just stay positive? How do you just keep saying it's working or what I'm doing is worth it? Uh, you know, I, uh, honestly, it's definitely a challenge in terms of, I actually didn't know it was a challenge. So I got elected in 2016. Mm -hmm. So I'm serving my second term, third year. Uh, so year one, um, you know, I was just showing up to work every day. And I always say this, you know, as, as a Latina woman, uh, who has often had people supervising her, um, I respect authority. You know, I, uh, in, in fact, sometimes I think we do it to a fault that it ends up hurting us. Uh, I remember many years ago reading an article that the reason uh, Latinos have a hard time moving into positions, higher positions, is because we are such good, like, um, uh, rule followers. Uh, and, you know, we're trying to be really respectful of process and this and that, that it, 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 it prevents us from moving up. Right, where people who move up are like, I don't know, doing... Uh, bend the rules, maybe. Yeah, bending yeah, the rules, or I, I don't even... Yeah. Not to say, not that all people yeah, who move yeah. up do that, but uh, Latinos are, are stunted. Our ability to move up is stunted because of how we are trained to be uh, really great at not, uh, you know, causing problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was in a federalism committee. My job is to ask questions. Um, I think it's something that we have a responsibility to do is to ask questions. Uh, that is how I gain an understanding of how policy has a positive or negative impact. Mm -hmm. And it would be very irresponsible of me to not do that. And I love to paint a picture when I speak, so I I'm not very good at debating policy language. It's complex, it's confusing, but there's a reason we want it to be complex and confusing because if it's complex and confusing, people are going to tune out. Yep. Uh, they will pay little attention. But if, if we paint a picture of how policy actually impacts people, then people might actually pay more attention. Mm -hmm. And so I focus on the human impact and the humanness of policy versus the language. Uh, and that's what gets me in trouble. So I was, I've been threatened uh, with removal by security. In fact, so that was year one. This year, uh, third week into session, um, I was told by a committee chairperson that I was behaving rude and disrespectfully. Yes. Uh, I went back and actually watch the video, and there's no rude or disrespectful behavior yeah. exhibited by me. Um, I guess it's rude and disrespectful if you ask questions, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. And so when the chairperson told me this, I said, I'm sorry, I disagree with you, mm -hmm. and your perception of what you believe to be disrespectful and rude may not correlate to how I see rude and disrespectful, and I have been very polite and very respectful. Um, and I, in this whole process, have been treated very rudely and disrespectfully by my colleagues on many occasions, but I've never complained about them because why, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't see a reason. But my colleagues, uh, mostly much older 
uh, people and of the opposite sex are so offended by my mm-hmm. mere presence yeah. that they complain about me. Think about that. Yeah. We're elected officials, adults. I go into work every day behaving as a professional, being talked about behind my back about how unprofessional, how rude and disrespectful I am. Mm-hmm. And I am addressed and told that if I continue to be rude and disrespectful that I may not be called upon in committee. Think about that, right? Okay. And every day I still show up to work Yeah. with a smile on my face uh, because I'm there to do the people's work. I am there to, uh, so the reason it came up is because we were debating a bill that had to do with uh, $5 million given to schools that have students that do AP testing, which is uh, the higher learning, right, the courses to get those college-level courses, Mm -hmm. AP exams. And this bill should have not passed last year, but it did, of course. And this year we're trying to make the bill better because what happens is if you are the AP teacher, and I am your science student and I come into your classroom and I take the AP exam and I score really high, you the teacher are going to get, I heard, as much as a $9,000 bonus. Yes, however, I'm a junior and I've had all these AP teachers that have helped me in the process, but you, because you happen to be my teacher that year when I take the AP exam, you're the one that gets a bonus. So they wanna create some level of equity whatever that means. So my argument or questions uh, were related to how inequitable this policy is at all levels, right? Because the only people, in most cases, a large number of people that students that take AP exams are already very privileged people. They already have access to uh, tutoring, uh, AP classes. So these kids are showing up to AP classrooms more than likely already very well prepared, Mm -hmm. right? Not because the teacher prepared them well, but because they've had all the access to privilege because their parents are from privilege, because they are from privilege, because they come from money, because they're, you know what I mean? But then, how about all those teachers at places like Tempe High, for example, where I graduated from, where you have kids that are underperforming at, let's say, I've heard as low as 20%, and then that teacher improves them and they move them up 10 percentage points. Yeah. That teacher actually created growth in that student, but that teacher receives no benefits because they're not teaching these kids APX. Right? So it's a very inequitable system, yeah. and I talked about its inequities. And I, when I gave my closing comments, I talked about that the policy is a form of institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently that is too jarring for my colleagues to start, right? We do, we create policies, and I'm going to believe it's because we're moving money in in a way that benefits the very already very privileged, right? And those are forms of um, inequities is the polite way of saying it, but it is a form of institutional racism. We're finding new ways of moving money into the pockets of people that already have a lot of access. And then with this, 
thing, we were creating even inequities within teachers. How is that okay? Yeah. So anyway, that got me in trouble. And because of that, I'm seen as rude and disrespectful. But every day I show up, and every day it doesn't change what I do or how I'm going to ask the questions. They still have to ask the questions. Yeah. So you're keeping the people in mind. Always. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense then. So yeah. Then you're, it's, it's a daily reminder, a daily motivation. And if people, people watch, if people watch, they're like, oh, my gosh, we get her. Because I yeah. paint a picture uh, that shows impact to people. Yeah. And, and that, that scares my colleagues. Yeah. Because I'll try to read stuff, and then it'll, it'll use the complex language. And you're right. I go, uh, okay, can, can someone just say who's benefiting or yes. who's getting hurt or what would this do? Why does it have to be? But that, that makes sense. And the, the institutionalized racism, yeah, because then it, it just it maintains the gap yes. or even makes it bigger um, between us. Yeah. And it, that sucks. Yeah, yeah, it does. It so if people pay attention to, I'm in uh, the education committee, the government committee, and the state and international. So a week ago, we heard a really bad bill uh, that takes away really the rights of tenants. Right, and uh, I, it was a very interesting uh, back and forth discussion. But if anyone were to be watching, they would be like, oh my gosh, uh, that is crazy that it's happening. Um, because it's, it's how we tell our stories, it's how we communicate. And in politics, my experience has been that they try to make things sound really complicated, so we're tuning out. But when you paint a picture and it is connecting to how we as people are impacted by the policies, uh, then it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and it should. Yeah. Um, and what, well, I guess who, who kind of helped you become that kind of storyteller and, and that, that impact with your words? Or did you always kind of have that in you? Um, so I take it back to, I think the way I'm a learner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was learning English, uh, always had a hard time understanding uh, certain context. Uh, sometimes they say English language learners have a hard time with sarcasm, so true. Um, right, so I think all of those experiences of me as a, as a young person, uh, is part of it but then also I think um, I was taught as we're often taught that we have experiences but we have to like forget about them and move on mm-hmm. and so for me it, it was a couple of things I started doing um, parenting classes for teen moms um, they were like 14 15 16 and moms to these mm-hmm. young children and they were my biggest teachers because remember, I say that kids, though in this case, young moms, are great perceivers of people. Uh, and I think I did this class for six weeks, uh, once every uh, once a week for two hours, and I would come home broken down. These girls broke me down. Uh, but they were my biggest teachers because I realized that what I was trying to do is I was trying to force a view, a way of thinking on them when all I can do is provide a tool to help them connect. And so that's when I started to share some uncomfortable stories, uh, right? Because 
as a mom, uh, I didn't want to acknowledge weaknesses yeah. or failures or insecurities. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we acknowledge who we, are, who we are authentically and our vulnerabilities, we connect to people, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that was the biggest one. And then the other big one is after SB 1070, I um, remember going to these like trainings where you have to do an icebreaker and the icebreaker would be, tell us something about yourself that no one would know. And I remember this day, I'm like, I'm gonna tell people I was undocumented, right? So I remember we were in a circle and then it kept going and it kept getting closer to me and I was getting closer to me. I was getting really uncomfortable and kind of my stomach was, was butterflies. I was shaking, my heart rate was going up. I think I was starting to sweat. I was starting to feel really hot. And then they came to me and I remember when I said, I was undocumented, right? Because it hurt, because mm-hmm. I didn't, it's not that I was ashamed, but I had never said it out loud to a group of strangers. But it was my way of saying, I was undocumented. This is what the face of undocumented looks like. Am yeah. I threatening, right? Um, and so again, it's a willingness to be vulnerable um, to be human, and that is where we find connections with people. Yeah, and that with the when you're saying your face, um, but then in in the media, people who are undocumented are are evil, and Muslims are evil. Like it, just how it's portrayed, and then when you just talk to someone who who isn't thinking critically about these things, and then when you're talking about how it, you know your colleagues might think you're rude. Um, Serena, who's um, who's Mexican, and she'll deal with people at her school district, um, and she brings up the fact that um, it's that whole fiery Latina uh, <laughs> persona that is thrown on us. They're like, oh, she's just got a fiery temper. Yes. She goes, no, I'm just telling you something, and it's that that came to mind of just how. You know, some people might carry these these um, biases. biases. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And just when they're dealing with people, even when you're just asking a question, yes. oh no, calm it down. What? I'm just asking a question. And it's, that's frustrating. Uh, it is, which means that we have to keep making others, because it, it's making them uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Right? And it's bringing attention to... Um, real issues, mm-hmm. right? And people don't want to talk about it. Like, and uh, so going back to that bill where I said it was a form of institutional racism, I was mm-hmm. told that I I had called the sponsor of the bill racist, and I'm like, no, I did not. Yeah. So I actually went back to the sponsor of the bill, and I said, I said, sir, um, and I think he was surprised. He wasn't expecting Right, and I'm like, I wanted to talk with you because I understand that you think I called you a racist. Let me be clear. I like you. I respect you. Um, I don't think you have bad intentions. I assume people have good intentions. Let's assume that, right? Mm-hmm. Although not always true. Yeah. But in his case, I'm gonna assume he has good intentions. I did not call you a racist. My job is to ask questions and to bring up inequities when I see them. The word inequities might make you feel comfortable, but the reality is that this policy, in fact, is a form of institutional racism. Mm-hmm. That makes you feel uncomfortable. 
that is not my fault. The reality is until we start addressing these forms of institutional racism and really authentically sitting down and talking about how inequitable these systems are, then we can move forward. Until we actually do that, then we're going to continue to be, you know, in essence, kind of knocking heads, right? And and I'm tired, and I'm tired of trying to make people comfortable. Um, we don't have, I don't have time for that. Right. Um, in Arizona, our kids, especially our poor kids, and a majority of them, in fact, are Latino, uh, but poor kids in general are hurting and suffering because of policies that are hurting our families and our kids. The fact that we don't have kids that have access to high-quality early childhood programs. Mm -hmm. The fact that we create rules punishing a parent because we think they don't want to work, because we think that they shouldn't have cash assistance for more than two years, because we think they shouldn't have that much money in food stamps. Those policies that are meant to punish an adult for their adult mistakes is filtering down to punishing children yeah children and then we are literally setting up children for failure and that is is it accidental i don't i don't know it feels very purposeful because in the last 20 years when we've seen an incline of uh, population growth among latino youth right we've seen a sharp decline in money is going to our public school system I don't think that's an accident. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier we talked about reports. My son was in fifth grade when a report called Five Shoes Waiting to Drop came out from Morrison Institute. Mm -hmm. I talk about this report uh, because my son was in fifth grade. The report said, here are the five things Arizona needs to do to be economically long-term sustainable. I'm hearing this report for the first time, it, because of a second report called Drop that came out in 2010, almost nine years ago. Yeah. So 2001, you were probably also in kindergarten or first or second grade. Oh, no. Um, you're young. My point yes, is you're young. Yes, you were okay. in elementary or middle school. The yes. point is you were okay. young. So in 2001, when this report said, invest in education, Uh, The Latino education gap is low, and this is a wealth of opportunity for Arizona if we really invest. And it talked about four other things that aren't worth mentioning. That was 2001. Mm -hmm. That was almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. 18 years ago. We have lost generations of kids, and during that time we have cut and cut and cut money to our education system. Mm -hmm. And we've created systems of segregation by giving more and more money to charter schools and Mm -hmm. private schools that benefit a very small group of people. Over $1 billion is given to charter schools that only educates less than 220,000 kids. Yeah. I don't have time. I don't have time to be polite, although I am polite, 
but they don't think I'm polite. To not ask important questions, to not bring attention to the inequities, to avoid talking about institutional racism, because we've lost generations of kids, mm -hmm. and not to mention that your generation is getting stuck with student loans. Ooh, I got, yeah. Can't That's, afford yeah. good housing. Uh, our rights are slowly being dismantled mm -hmm. as people, right? And we call them, we call those government regulations. Actually, they're dismantling consumer protections. They're trying to dismantle, and we've already had a problem in Arizona with worker protections. I don't have time. Yeah. Because if we start to fix it now, Oliver, your 16-month-old child might be in middle school, maybe in a decent funded school system, if we can start fixing it now. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, it puts a lot of things into perspective once uh, he showed up. Um, and um, They're like time bombs. And I love that you're saying, you know, you don't have time. It's, you don't have time because it's not like everything pauses while you go to have this meeting. People's lives are being affected. Every day. And these kids are growing up. And it's these people who, who kind of don't give a crap about that or they're ignoring the effects of it. Because they're it's, fine. Right? Oh, yeah. Because they're well, living in luxury. Why should they worry about it? It's, because I, I got my bootstraps and and I I made it so if I made it you can make it well you know what the reason you're making it is because the laws are heavily in your favor to give you more privilege mm -hmm. and access yeah and that is why you've been able to carry on with your quote unquote bootstraps because you've been helped all along this way while we've anyway yeah yeah. Um, and it, I think you put it really uh, beautifully when you said, you know, with the, with the some kids who, who, had, who were able to afford tutoring and so on and so on. So by the time they get to that AP teacher, they're cool. Yeah. Whereas other kids, they, they don't, no. right? Um, depending on what, what household they grew up in or socioeconomic status. And I think that's the best way to put it is some people are just aff afforded this, this privilege and different... Um, circumstances mm -hmm. and benefits and yeah and, and and now we uh create laws to even give them more access yeah. and more tools and more money and more privilege yeah i'm gonna go cry in the bathroom now <laughs> oh, sorry. no i'm just kidding <laughs> um so we usually end with um i always say we but there's not me and my coffee uh we usually end <laughs> with uh some a little more random questions okay uh, to unwind I don't know. Um, you, probably, you can probably get like two segments out of this. <laughs> it'll be, yeah, I probably could. Um, do you think uh, living in the present is uh, more or less challenging than living in the past? Ooh. Why? Living now with the current person running our country, uh, for me, mm -hmm. Wow. I, I, let me paint a different picture. Uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, I was undocumented. So, and what's crazy is uh, I can identify that even though as an undocumented kid, I had privilege. Mm -hmm. Think about that. 
although I was poor, uh, struggling, um, I never had to worry about the Arizona State Legislature creating laws that would have my mom and dad in ICE detention and then deported. Um, I was undocumented and never had to worry about a Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Mm -hmm. Um, I was undocumented and never had to worry about a president calling me a criminal, a rapist, and all of these things, right? In fact, in the 80s, I heard from our president at that time that immigrants were a fabric of this nation, that we were part of this country, and he created a pathway to citizenship for three million people like me, both Democrats and Republicans. So now, I know kids that are in fact US citizens, but because their parents are undocumented, they live in the shadows, hmm. in fear of having their parents being deported, of sitting in ICE detention, of being in a school system that segregates them because their first language was something other than English. That was my past, and this is a present, so you tell me. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> you also had Michael Jackson, so that was in the 80s. That's right, yes. That was pretty great. A little thriller. <laughs> Man in the Mirror. Man in the Mirror. Yes. Um, What's something you're excited about that's that's coming up? I know things are looking oh my um, God. pretty pretty dark. No, no, they're not. No, I'm just I, I know I'm not trying to make it. No, but it's no, real. You're good. No, it's, it's real. No, I yeah. remember I told you I have hope. Yes. Um, so I am incredibly hopeful because uh, young people uh, in particular are really paying attention to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right, um, we've had these amazing movements. We've had these kids that are known as March for Our Lives in Arizona, that uh, are creating a policy of to really think about uh, kids and their mental health situations and how we need to provide more support systems. I've had, I had this. Uh, 14-year-old girl named Lolita from Coolidge. Uh, her and her mom drove all the way from Coolidge to Shadow Me, which is an opportunity to follow me at the Arizona State Capitol uh, during a day uh-huh. to see what shenanigans I get into. I've actually had young people every day for like the last three weeks following me. Oh, so if anyone's interested, if you want to come and shadow me, cool. you're more than welcome to as well. I'll probably get you in trouble. Uh, that would be perfect. Probably, okay, cool. That would be Done. perfect. Trouble does not deter me. My point is, I am so hopeful because uh, young people give me so much hope um, because um, there is a shift and change in the air, and I feel it, and it's tangible, and I'm starting to see it. 
there is a reason why uh, my colleagues in the Arizona State Legislature want to suppress voters. Mm -hmm. They are so afraid of all these amazing young people, especially because many of them are young people of color that are turning out and starting to demand uh, their voices be heard by voting. Yeah. So that gives me hope. So I'm incredibly hopeful of your generation and the younger generations of uh, paying attention and creating a real shift and change. That's great, yeah. Um, what would you do uh, with the extra time if you physically didn't have to sleep? Oh my God. What would you do? <laughs> By the way, I love to sleep. I need my eight hours of sleep. Um, I would be, um, I'd be hanging out with, uh, with high school kids and junior high kids. I love, love, love um, going into classrooms, especially because it's, so I growing up never got to see anyone that looked like me in a position of, yeah. um, I, don't, I don't even say power, it's not power, in a position like Arizona State led. So when I get to go up, I would spend time uh, speaking to high school kids and middle school kids and even elementary school kids like in fifth and sixth grade. Uh, and especially if it's a room full of uh, young people of color, uh, I get it, man. I grew up in poverty. I make myself incredibly uh, vulnerable in a way that does feel slightly uncomfortable. Uh, but when kids, remember, they're the great perceivers mm -hmm. of people and truth. Yeah. And uh, when they hear me and are like, wow, I can connect to her, maybe because I look like they're Nana, or mom, yeah. or aunt, or something, right? And because I was formerly undocumented, it just shifts their way of thinking. So I would spend more time uh, hanging out with, uh, in classrooms and telling my story. Yeah. And then, uh, so you talked a little about the movies from your childhood. Did you have any movies you did like growing up? Oh, um... Or even now, whichever. Oh my God! So I was watching Coco the other day. Yes. Tearjerker, man. Yes. So big fan. Oh, okay. How about if I tell you my favorite favorite cartoon? Cool. I'm okay. Good with that. Uh, Avatar: Last Airbender. <gasps> Is it really? Oh my God! I'm such a fan. Big, huge, freaking fan of that. It it is so beautifully done. Yeah. And it talks about our humanness and connectedness and love and care and kindness. Yeah. I hate my life now. That's been on my list of to watch because <gasps> I, I did, you know, I'll you do different watch. anime and cartoons, but no, no. that's still on my... No, you must watch. And I'm that so one, mad. I would highly... I, I would watch that with my kids because it came out like in 2005 or six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my kids were little. It would be like our Saturday night. We would sit right in front of the TV and like oh watch it. Gosh. It is like the best... When I think about it, I get goosebumps. That is the ultimate best, best, best. Not the movie. Oh, I was gonna say you love the movie then. No, no the movie I'm was terrible. Saying. The movie was terrible. Of course, That's they ruined it. Yes. Yeah. No. No. The cartoon, amazing. Oh my gosh. It's like really, it's so. It's just so well done, and it's 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 this human spirit and connectedness, and it has to do with like love and empathy and kindness and the struggles. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, um, and that's. That's something now that um, he's going to eventually watch TV. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing research on different things. And so like bubble guppies, I don't know if you're... No, a, <laughs> don't, uh, no. Um, that's a super little kid. But I mean, um, 
But it's cool because it's, you know, three girls, three boys. Um, they're all different um, people of color. One wears glasses. So it's really cool. So we're, we're trying to really find um, diverse and well-intentioned cartoons, not like... Um, there's some cartoons where it's like six boy characters and oh, one yeah. girl character. I go, what the, what is that? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. terrible. And so, or the girl character is doing something delicate and the other ones are the tough ones. Yeah. And so, I don't want to show that. I grew that, up with but, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Avatar, cool. I will definitely look into that. And then, um, what music or music artist puts you in a good mood? So, if you had a hard day at work, what are you going to throw on? And then you're just I am so bad. I've been, uh, so I feel like the last year I have foregone any English kind of music. So I've been all... Uh, well, well, whatever. Whatever gets you... <clears throat> so Alejandra Guzman, Gloria Trevi, um, Maluma, like anything that is a little uh, Latino pop. Yeah. And maybe a little reggaeton on yeah. occasion. Yeah, a little. Okay, yeah. cool. And then... Um, did you have a favorite music video growing up? Uh, no? So, yes, I yes. did. Uh, it was... Uh, was it? it was a Wicked Game. Um, really Chris liked. Isaac? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Chris, yeah. Chris Isaac, Wicked yeah. Game. Uh, favorite song, Man in the Mirror. One of my favorite songs yes. from the 80s. But Wicked Game was one of my favorite videos. And then there was another one... Um, Oh, I can never, it was a beautiful video, but I can't remember it right now. Anyway, cool. so wicked game. Awesome. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank That's you. It. Okay, perfect. Oh, yay, you win. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much again for doing this. Okay, but is your wife going to come back? Because I really want to do, so I was posting on so. Instagram. 